Welcome to Young Adults. Um, we are continuing our series on relationships tonight, but I want to tell you this little story first. Uh, does anybody in the room know what this is? What, what system is this from? Anybody? Nintendo 64. I was probably eight years old. It dates me a little bit. I was probably eight years old when my family got an N64. I have two older brothers. And we got an N64, and this game right here, I rebought this in college, uh, and I had to play it because this is uh, Ken Griffey's Home Run Baseball, and it's uh, the, the year is 1998, and this is like the, the beginning of one, my love with baseball, but two, my love with the Cardinals. And this is like, I could tell you most of the players that have a, a big circle in this game that can hit home runs and hit for average. Um, some of the best, like most fun I've had is like, just playing this game, and it's so much fun. But uh, my brothers, uh, when I was probably 10, me and my brothers got a gift uh, that Christmas from my uncle. My uncle always was really good at giving gifts and knowing what we wanted, and he figured what would three young men love more than an N64 game about wrestling? And I don't remember if it was like WWF what, but it was something around wrestling and we had this game, and we had play, played a couple other games, but whatever it was about this game and that season, I don't know what the deal was, but me and my brothers could not get along playing this game. Do y'all have anything like that? Like, pretty much fine beyond this, but like, for whatever reason, me and my brothers just got rowdy when we were playing this game. Like, couldn't get along, fighting, um, probably calling each other names, and I'm sure it was like, listen, I just did that to you in the game. Now it's going to happen to you in real life if you don't change what's happening here. And I remember my parents gave us a warning. They're like, we don't know what's happening. We don't know why this is going on, but it better stop. And we, I, I don't know what we did, but we didn't listen. And uh, soon after that, my parents came and they found the, the game cartridge. They got the box that it came in. They asked my uncle what store it came from, and they took it back to the store. And uh, I, I don't remember, I don't think the game was that much fun. I went and tried to find the same game when I was like rebuying games as like vintage game buying in, in college. And none of the wrestling games are that much fun. They're just weird. And um, it wasn't that fun. But at the time, it was like devastating, right? Because we had this gift. We didn't know how to use it. And we, 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 we couldn't get along with it. And it ended up getting this punishment. And it ended up getting taken away. And uh, tonight, we're, we have the fun topic of what's God's plan for sex? And I think sometimes we think about it like we do that game, like me and my brothers thought about that game. It was a gift initially. God meant it for us as a gift. The Bible kind of talks about that, and we'll talk about tonight even where that comes from. But um, God meant sex as a gift. He created it. He, he created us. He created our bodies and what they do, so he created sex. And Sometimes I feel like our culture and ourselves misuse it and we deal with the punishment for that. Now, you might be in the room and you're like, listen, I, I, when you talk about sex, it's, it's so tough. As I was praying through this, there's so many different stories and things that you, you probably have a story. If it's not you personally, it's someone in your family of, of a way that sex just like came through your family like a storm and it ruined things. Whether it's an affair, infidelity, a parent that couldn't kick a pornography problem and the other parent said no more. Parents that just didn't get along and you know that that was like a piece of it. Maybe you were had out of wedlock and in your family that, that messed everything up. Maybe you're the, the product of a one night stand and you know that and it's like, what, what happened? Maybe you were adopted and that, that kind of lives in your head like my parents did this thing together but they couldn't figure it out. They, they didn't want me so like what, what does that mean? And then there's all the things that we make choices in of like, we made a choice, sex was a part of that, 
We have regret around that. We have shame around that. So when you read about sex in the Bible, you're like, yeah, it, it has to do with like, we can have God's plan for sex, but I messed that up. I'm not. We use the, we use the, we, sorry, we use the word pure, and you're like, man, if something's pure, and then it's not pure anymore, it's never pure again. So can I be pure because of my past with sex? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, okay, that was family choices, that was your own choice. Maybe something happened to you in the realm of sex that was not your choice, and that is a heavy topic for you. It should be. But there's pain associated with it. There's difficulty associated with it. So I hope you know that as we talk about this, it's difficult. There's a lot of pain wrapped up in it. But that doesn't mean we can't hear what God says and it doesn't apply to our lives. As I'm listening to that song that we just sang, I'm chosen, I'm forgiven, I'm already loved. That's not, that doesn't have a caveat. The verses that that's from doesn't have an asterisk next to it that says because if you've had a, a, a past, that doesn't apply to you. God's word is for you. God has a plan for you. And in the area of sex, you can have success, you can have hope, you can have a future that God can do with your life something that is redeeming everything that's been wrong with it. So I want you to think for a second as we kind of kick off, how do you think about sex? Because I think your thoughts on sex and the way that it's shaped into our minds really matters. How do you think about it? If someone were to ask you, what would you say is God's plan for sex? Because I think those can potentially be two different things, right? You have a way that you perceive it internally that you would never vocalize, this is what God's plan for sex is. Because I know that my brain is messed up and I know that I have these, these, these past trauma history baggage that I carry that I can't get those thoughts out of my head. Well, how do you think about sex and what would you say, this is God's plan for sex? As we talk about this topic, I think this is one of those things that we have to acknowledge that, that culture is a current in this. Ephesians 5.16 talks about how we need to be careful the way that we walk because the days are evil, so we need to stand firm. The, the word picture there is that there's a, a low river and it's trying to take your feet away. And it's not taking your feet away into a direction that's for your good. The days are evil. The Bible talks about, Logan and I talk about this all the time here. John 10.10 10 talks about how he came to give us life and life abundant, but the, the enemy came that he might steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes he, times he does it through the promise of what sex can be. I want to read Romans 1, uh, 21 through 25, to just, just to kind of set the tone for this evening. It says, it's talking about the Roman people. It says, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look at this, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the created. Rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And this is what happens with sex. This is what our culture has done. We've exchanged, we've done two things. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we've started to worship the creature rather than the creator. We worship sex as this ultimate thing. I think one of those lies, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. One of those lies is that, man, God is withholding. God has 
so much joy for us, but he doesn't give it to us. Why? Sex is this good thing, but I'm single, so I can't have it. God is withholding. Does God really do that? Is he withholding? Is he mean? Is he limiting? Is the idea of sex, the way that God designed it, harmful to me? Does that hurt? You see things like the sexual revolution that happened in the 60s that our, our parents or grandparents were a part of, and it said, hey, sex anytime, anywhere, any place, any person, and what you're seeing now, there's studies that report that that is not helpful for our psyche, and these are not Christian sources. These are just regular sources of, of psychology that say this is not good for you, that God's not just limiting things. People would look at the plan for, that God has for sex and say, it's just not realistic, I think one of the things that's gonna be really difficult about what we do tonight when we kick in is that sometimes, because culture is such a sweeping thing, we have gotten so swept up in it, so carried away. Think about those words that we use when, when you get really involved in a hobby or even just something that you're like, man, I, I, I had these bad habits for a certain amount of time. You get swept up in it. You get carried away. It's that low-running river of culture that carries us to a place that we didn't wanna go. We have the idea that God's word is just not realistic. The idea of sex, God's way, we look at it and we're like, okay, that, it's 2023. Even in the way that if you look up like what they teach in schools about safe sex and what to do with that, they say, okay, if you're gonna go with abstinence, I mean, that's not really a realistic option, so let's talk about some other options. Doing sex God's way is almost seen as a joke and an eye roll. So I think as we hear God's truth tonight, meditate on it. Hold it, keep it, keep it close. Know what God's word says so that when the time comes and Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy, you feel that current coming by your feet, you can go, okay, hold on, what does God's word say? What's true? What can I hold on to when everything around me seems to be moving? That people don't think it's realistic. Another lie that happens in culture about sex, is it, this, it only affects me. This pornography addiction or this lust that I have, it, it doesn't hurt anyone, it only affects me. Man, but God's word's just not clear on it. Does it really have anything to say about sex or does it just kind of say like the Old Testament and they knew each other and you're like, there's a lot of things that are between the lines and they knew each other. That it can be confusing. But I think one of the biggest lies that this generation believes in is that sex is the ultimate adventure, it's the ultimate experience, it's the ultimate pleasure and we need to do anything that we can to get there. Now there's another side of things that might be a more emotional way of thinking about things and a more uh, intimate, um, deep, connecting way of thinking about things. And in that way of thinking, sex might just be the tool to get to that deep connectedness. Either way, we set sex up on a pedestal as the ultimate and it becomes us worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator. But here's the thing, culture doesn't even follow its own guidance. Okay, is anybody in the room, this is probably a little before your time, is anybody in the room a Seinfeld fan? Anybody gonna admit to the show Seinfeld? Does anybody know what the show Seinfeld is? Everybody know what the show Seinfeld is? Super popular in the 90s, one of the biggest shows ever, Jerry Seinfeld, um, but I, I had never like really sat down and watched it. It was always just on after MASH or something that a show I actually liked. And uh, I'd end up, that dates me, I, I love that show. But um, I'd catch pieces of the episode, but I caught one the other day where the, two of the main characters, Jerry, and who's his ex-girlfriend, now just his friend, are sitting on the couch, they get bored, and the TV's not working or something, and they look at each other and they, they start talking about sex. And they start talking about how much they enjoyed when they could just have sex. And they start doing this thing where they're sitting on the couch next to each other, and they're doing this, and they go, hey, this was always good, but they point to the bedroom and they say, that was good too. We liked doing that, that was good. 
But their objection to just having a friends with benefits situation is, they said, that situation made this situation confusing. So they said, how could we have this, but also have this? The relationship with the physical, with the sex aspect. And what they do over the next couple minutes in the scene is they set parameters around their relationship where they have sex, but they're also just friends. And it becomes one of those things where they, they, they make these rules. Okay, we're not going to call each other the next day. There's no, and, and it's trying to limit the emotional exposure that happens in sex. And they start, start making these plans and doing this. And, and, and this is the course of the episode. But here's the thing. It's comedy. Through the course of the episode, they find themselves getting emotionally tied to each other. And the audience knows it. It wasn't a surprise. Nobody sat there and was like, oh man, this is gonna go well. It, the, the joke was they want everything but nothing at the same time with no commitment. That even Hollywood, even our culture, winks at the idea, that nods at the idea of like, okay, you can't have both. And Seinfeld knew that 30 years ago. So what is truth? What do we hang on to? So I have, I have three things we're gonna look at tonight. What is the Bible, what does God say about sex? What's a good example of, of marital sex? And what's God's plan? What's the ultimate God's plan? So we're gonna be in three different sections of scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, Song of Solomon 4, and Ephesians 5. You can actually go to the Bible app, go to events, and it's right there. You can follow along, save it, email it to yourself later. But I'm gonna start by reading 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. And this gives you a little insight about the people of Corinth that Paul's writing to. This is the first statement that he makes. And this was a church that, man, they, they wanted to follow Jesus, but they also did things exactly like the culture did, and that included sex. But this is a quote that he's using of theirs and saying this is what, what doesn't work. He, what they argue is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The food for the, meant for the stomach and the stomach for food is the quote that they would have used. But then he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What in the world is he saying there? The attitude in Corinth was towards sex was this. They, they did the analogy with food that they said, if you're hungry, eat. If you desire sex, have it. That was the attitude. That was what they wanted. If, you, if you're hungry, you eat. It's just, that's what you do. If you want sex, you have it. It's the same relationship to them. So what they started doing was like, if they wanted to have sex and they didn't have an avenue to do that, they would just go down to a temple that had prostitutes, have sex, and be done. And it was just this physical release for them. And he says that shouldn't be that way. But look at the next verse in verse 14. He says, and God raised, he, he, he changes the, the conversation from just purely a physical to something else. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He's speaking to a group of believers. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's saying that like when you become a believer, you become the physical representation of Christ to the people around you. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members with a prostitute? Never. Or if you do not know that he's joined together with a prostitute, becomes one body with her. And that one body is a term that we see in the Bible from Genesis 2, where, G where God tells Adam and Eve that they should be naked and unashamed and they should become one flesh. The attitude there, what we see in the very beginning about sex and, and marriage is that within marriage you can be naked and unashamed, and those words aren't just physical. What it's saying is that there's an emotional openness. There's a full openness to who they are. 
in a full acceptance. Like, it's one thing to be fully known. There's people that I, uh, that I know that I'm like, I mean, the more that I'm around them, the more I understand them. But sometimes the person, we were just talking about this the other day with somebody. Uh, it, it's easy to be friends with somebody and they're until you're their, you're their roommate. And you're like, for some reason, I didn't see all these problems until I shared a bathroom with them. Why? Because you know them better. They're, you know them at a more intimate and deep level. It's one thing to be known. It's one thing to be fully known and fully loved. Sometimes it's easy to love somebody from really far away. There's a saying that's like, hey, don't ever meet your heroes. They'll let you down. I remember I had a friend growing up that met one of the St. Louis Rams, and that St. Louis Ram, that, play, that, that football player, didn't give him the time of day. And he was like, it changed the, the, the situation. It changed the way that I saw them because I so admired them. I so admired, they had this, this nonprofit that they had in the community, but then he was like, I just don't see them the same way because he's unkind and unloving. It's easy to love people from afar and it's hard to be fully known. But what he's saying is that sex should happen within a marriage that says, I'm fully known and fully loved and we should become one flesh. And that one flesh isn't just talking about physically, it's emotional, deep intimacy of being fully known and fully loved. And that's what he says here. He's saying that when you have sex with these temple prostitutes, you're opening yourself up to becoming one with them. And he says, he kind of like takes a step back and he's like, listen, you're a Christian. Like when you became a Christian, you became someone who's connected with Christ, you should know better. You should think about the way that you live your life in a way that you're being led by the Spirit of God. Are we being led by the Spirit of God when we do that activity? Are we being led by the Spirit of God when we engage in pornography? Are we being led by the Spirit of God when we do things with a significant other that is not God-glorifying? That's where Paul takes it here. In verse 16, he says that. He says, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So in the next chapter, he even touches on this again and kind of adds a little bit of clarity. After he's done talking about sexual immorality, he, he explains where do you have sex? If, if, if this is the people that are like, wait, we just have sex anywhere and everywhere, what's the situation? So in 1 Corinthians 7, he says this. Now, concerning the matters about which I wrote to you just now, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's not saying man and woman together. He's saying like unmarried man, unmarried woman together. But because of the temptation into sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What he's saying there, and this is one of those things that is so countercultural to what we believe now, any and every sexual satisfaction that we have, any amount of sexual gratification has its place, and that is within marriage. There is no space in the Bible where you see a God-honoring and glorifying sexual act done that's outside of marriage. Only inside of marriage is that happening. And that you look at that and you're like, okay, none, zero, like what? (laughs) That's like nothing. But you look at the way that like the the 10 commandments were written and it was like, hey, don't, don't cheat on your wife essentially. You shouldn't commit adultery. And when the Pharisees are grilling Jesus about this, he says, hey, you say that it's outward, I say that it's inward as well. He says, if anyone lusts after a woman, I think it's Matthew, Matthew 6, Matthew 5, if anyone lusts after a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the, the attitude is like, 
If I have any lust, it should be towards my wife, that I want her, that it should be geared towards that. That's it. And that raises the standard of like, man, God's standard is much, much higher. So what do we do? We go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 18, and, and those first four words, flee from sexual immorality. If any sexual satisfaction outside of marriage is wrong, anything that is outside of that is considered sexual immorality. And he says, flee from it. To flee from it, the word that he used here is like literally like run, go, get, get, get away from it. That the attitude is not like see if you can get as close as you can. You can, you can probably watch that movie and it's fine. You can probably have that relationship and it's okay. It's saying like, man, there should be some space. There should be like, you should have the attitude of, I don't know if I can handle this or not. I'm gonna just err on the safe side and run away from it. Is this what your personal disciplines look like? Is this what your Instagram explore page looks like? Run from the bad and take it seriously. And he brings it back to another place of honoring God. Flee from sexual immorality. Listen to this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immor- the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And you know this. There's a deep level of pain and, and hurt that happens in sexual sin. And then he says, or do you not know that your body, and this is where he brings it back to where I think we have to understand Do you you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? If we're gonna have success, we're gonna have to do what Galatians talks about. It says we don't gratify the the flesh, we just do it by walking in the Spirit. That's the only way we can do this, knowing God's word, walking with the Spirit, having people around us that can help keep us accountable, that we have from God. Listen to this, for you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's this attitude that like, this isn't just mine. My body is not just mine. I'm, I'm God's because of what he did for me. I think sometimes we have to reorient what our minds are and have and have been shaped around, around, uh, okay, that's what it says about sexual immorality, what it says about how a good sexual relationship is supposed to happen. But I think so many of us, even if you had good Christian parents, you, you maybe didn't get the clearest birds and the bees talk of what it looked like to have a good God-honoring sexual relationship. And um, that's where I want to turn to uh, Song of Solomon 4. If you've never read Song of Solomon before, um, it's an incredible book, um, but it was always the book that I had growing up that was like, it said certain words that I knew that I wasn't supposed to say, but I could, I could pull out the pew Bible and point, it, point to it with one of my brothers and get a good giggle out of it because it was like, it says a, 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 an anatomy part that I get to laugh at. And it, it, honestly, for years, it was like, what's the, what's the game plan here? Like, why, why is this little, little book sandwiched in the Bible? And, and what Song of Solomon is, is it's a, it's a poetic book that's written either about Solomon or by Solomon or dictated from Solomon. And it basically walks through him and his relationship with his wife. And it goes every, every place from the area of like attraction and why I'm attracted to that person, what it looks like to court and date someone, to uh, marriage, the, the, the wedding, and then the wedding night, which is what we're gonna look at here in a moment, to what it looks like to be married well. 
And the, the thing that helped me the most, there's a book by Matt Chandler called Mingling of Souls that works just like a commentary through the, the Song of Solomon. Probably one of the best books on dating that I've ever read because it just operates that way. And probably until then, I thought that God's word didn't have anything to say about sex. I didn't think it had anything to say about any of that. So it's one of the most illuminating and helpful things to me. But I wanna read to you what, what uh, that book describes as the wedding night. And we're like, okay, what are we getting into? I'm not gonna read everything, but I want you to know that you should go back and read it with a commentary or go buy Mingling of Souls and read it and understand that God's view of sex is this. And I'll, I'll read it here in just a moment. Song of Solomon, verse four, or chapter four, verse one. This is in the wedding night, in the hotel. This is the moment. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful that he stops and what you see over the next really six verses here, that you see it at the end of this first verse, but he has this deep affection for her and he has this deep appreciation, he has this deep love, this, this, this delight that's in her before any sexual act has ever started to happen. He's telling her, I, I love you. I, I value you. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And then he starts to describe her physically. And he essentially goes head to toe. And I'll read you the first one because it's almost funny, the, the way that he describes her. He says, your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Like, you, it would probably not do well if you're like crushing on somebody to be like, your hair looks like goats, girl. You may ever tell you you look like a nice goat? Like it's not gonna go well for you, don't do it. But in that language and in that poetic tone, what he's telling her is that I love you, I have a deep respect that didn't just start with me lusting after you physically, they had a deep emotional connection as well. And he's enamored with her. And that only happens if there's a slow and steady growth as they are attracted to each other, dating, engaged, and getting married. The things that you see in this chapter are gentleness, a selflessness, caring attitude. There's passion involved. You can't read it and understand that there's not passion. And enjoyment. They're just enjoying this act together as married couple for the first time. And you read it and you're like, man, this is, this is paramount. This is the top of the mountain. This is as good as it gets. But this is the reason why God included it in the Bible so that we could look at it and go, God didn't create marriage just for procreation. He meant it for our enjoyment as well. You can't read some of the things in there and go, okay, that, that's just for procreation. It's not, it's for enjoyment. It's a good gift that he gave to us and he wants us to enjoy it. But if we view it as, I'm so messed up, I can't have it, you're gonna start to mess up your view of it. But if we look at it like, this is God's plan for sex, and it can be this good, we will start to shape, I'm not going to have a cheap substitute because I'm not gonna exchange the truth about God for a lie because I know how good it can be and I know that what's being offered on my phone screen is not what God has for me. It's a cheap substitute, it's a lie. We have to let that truth live above everything else. In verse um, seven, eight, and nine, 
He comes back to it after he's done describing what she looks like physically. He said, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. I mean, there is a deep love for each other that only starts with a friendship. And then he says, he uses this phrase in verse eight, come, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana to speak of Sinir and Hermon from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. I mean, this guy is fully infatuated at this point. He's not talking about going to a, a zoo or a place with animals. He's like, listen, I'm gonna take you to a mountaintop. This is gonna be the, like, he is excited and he is having fun in the moment. But in verse nine, listen to this. He says, you've captivated my heart, my sister. And, and you hear that word, my sister, and you're like, listen, in that space, I don't know that I'd be calling anybody my sibling. And you're like, you're probably right. But what he's saying there is that there's this deep connectedness that's not just based on using sex to get there. He's not using sex as a tool. He's not using it as a gateway into intimacy. He's saying, I know you at a deep level because of the marriage that we just had. And I'm connected with you. I'm, 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 I'm close to you. I'm committed to you. He loves her. Listen to what he says next. He says, you have captivated my heart, my bride, You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And what, what you start to see, I think it's in verse 12. I forgot to include it. But what he says is, is like, your love is like a fountain that's locked away. It's kept secret. And the attitude there is that sex is created to be this thing that's sacred and holy and just between you and your spouse. And now he's the only one who gets to enjoy it. It's the thing that Logan said last week. It's created with boundaries. That when we have it without boundaries, it's a mess. When we have it without boundaries, it's dangerous. Logan said he wouldn't let his kids go play in the front yard because there's a busy street in the front yard and no fence. What our culture does, and ultimately what we do as part of that culture, is that we want to have that thing that is both dangerous and pleasurable, but without the boundaries that are around it. And when we do, we lessen and cheapen and we exchange God's truth for a lie and we have a diminished version of what God has for us. So what is God's plan for sex? And we find that in Ephesians 5. I'm gonna start in verse 21. In Ephesians 5, 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That out of what he's talking about here, and if you have your Bible pulled up, it has a heading that says wives and husbands. And you have to know that um, he's talking about married people. He's talking about husband and wives that are getting married. And he talks about this only happens right if it's out of reverence for Christ. It can't be out of a communication thing. It can't be out of like, this is just a contract that works well for me and you. Two people that are getting married that want to reverence Christ are going to have what a marriage takes to survive. But it says both people are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in verse 22, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his himself, its savior. And you, you ha start having like a little change in attitude. What you start to see is like, 
You are having this mutual submission to God and then submitting to one another out of love for one another. Submission is, when I think about the word submission, I think about like UFC and people fighting and like you got each other in a headlock and one of you has to submit. That's not necessarily the, the word picture that you want to think through in marriage. But what you do want to think through is like, Listen, I'm submitting my will to yours. I'm submitting my preference to yours. I'm submitting um, to your preference, maybe. That these are the four things that we're going to talk about are the pillars that God created marriage and the covenant to be, and that sex lives under. The first one is submission. And he uses it as like the, the analogy is God and the church. What would God's church be? What would this place be if we read God's word of like, this is how we should live and we didn't submit to it? A marriage that two people don't submit to each other is not a marriage that two people respect and honor and love each other. The second thing is in uh, verse 24, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It says, husbands, you love the wife, the same as Christ loves the church. What's buried in there is the idea that Christ died for you and the church. So you sacrifice. You lay down your life. You, you, you say, this is not my preference. You can have it. This is yours. I want to sacrifice myself. I want to sacrifice my time. I want to sacrifice my resources around the things that you want, in small and in large. Um, one of my favorite Disney movies is Inside Out. Any Inside Out fans? And it's like this 12-year-old girl um, that's like going through all these emotional changes, all these things. But one of the things that happens in her, I can't remember if it's in her mind or somewhere else, but there's this machine that pops out this guy that she is infatuated with, or maybe it's like her perfect version of a guy. And it ends up popping out like 15 of the same guy and it just keeps happening over and over. But the phrase that he says, and I think her name's Riley, he pops out and he kind of puffs up his chest and he goes, Riley, I would do anything for you. I would die for you. And we laugh at that because it's like what 12-year-old understands sacrifice. And I look at that and the attitude there is like, I would do anything for you. And I think everybody wants a love that they have, that, that has that aspect to it. But then we go, okay, are we gonna get off the couch for each other? And that's where it hits home for me a little bit more. Where it's like, I'll do anything for you. But I don't know if I'm gonna get up right now um, my wife is super, I have a great wife, lo- love our relationship. My wife has such a special talent. As soon as I set my seat on the couch, hey, before you sit down, yeah, uh-huh. And it is, it is testing, and I don't always do it right. But I think that's, those are those little things of like, what does it look like to sacrifice? Well, we sacrifice like Christ sacrificed for us. He sacrificed anything. He sacrificed for our sins that were big, and he sacrificed for our sins that were small. He sacrificed for us. The next one's sanctification. You're like, what, how does that fit in? You understand submission. You understand sacrifice. Everybody wants to be part of a marriage that has that. But what about sanctification? So he says, husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that, listen to this, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. One of my roles and responsibilities as a husband is that one day I will present to God my family and ultimately my wife and say, this is my wife. 
And I wanna present to her the most God-honoring, Christ-like version that I possibly can. One of the aspects of marriage that gets so forgotten and dismissed is we're not just like, man, I found somebody that we're compatible. I found somebody that we have similar goals and we can walk through life. But somebody that can be like a little bit of really nice, fine sandpaper in your life and help you see things you don't see and help you change things that you don't wanna change. Not so that you can just be a, a fun version of yourself, not so that you can just save money and buy a house and retire together, but so that at the end of time, what this verse says, so that he might present to himself, God is presenting to himself his church, and we are presenting to God each other's spouses to say, this is, this is the best that I could do. Submission, sacrifice, sanctification. And then verse 28 through 30, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He loves his wife. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body, that we serve each other. We serve each other. It says that you should treat them like they're yourself. You know who I've never wondered about who I'm gonna get lunch for is myself. I get myself lunch all the time. I love it but I should have the same attitude towards my wife. Does she have everything she needs? Does she need me to serve her in a way? Do I need to check in and get something for her? Do I need to get, do, do I need to help? Do I need to show up and sacrifice the same way that I would get those things for myself? I now extend that and say, I'm gonna get those things for her. We serve, why? Because Christ served us in his sacrifice, in his sanctifying us, he served. And listen to this, and this is, this is what's so cool about this to me. He gives this big, long thing, and it's, it's cool because it mimics the gospel, and it's all these things, and he says, do these things, husbands do these things, wives do these things. These are things that you should look for even pre-marriage because these aren't things that because you have a ring on your finger, it just automatically happens. These are things you should look for. If there's not someone who's submitting to Christ, who's submitting to, to church leadership, who's submitting to even a small group, what makes you think that they're gonna submit to you one day? But in verse 31, he says, therefore, so given all this information, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That because of all these things, it's creating this, this house, this, these pillars that sex can operate inside of. And he says, hey, now that you've got these things, now that you're operating in this way, this is how you have Song of Solomon 4. This is how you start to have a healthy relationship. This is how you start to have a relationship that people will look at and go, why does your family operate that way? How does your, how does your husband, how does your wife serve you? How do you guys, how do you guys just keep getting better? Well, it's because we're sanctifying each other. It's because we love each other. It's because we're doing what Christ called us to do. And then in verse 32, it says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Th th this marriage, this mystery is Christ in the church. What the Bible tells us is that marriage is a covenant. And what's special about a covenant is that it says that I'm not going anywhere. Up until then, there was an understanding of a contract. You uphold, end, uphold your end of the deal, I'll uphold my end of the deal, and we'll all be good. And let me tell you, this is the way that most marriages work. 
But what God says is, I'm going to hold a covenant which says that I'm going to uphold both sides because I'm going to assume you're not going to uphold your end of the deal. And I get to do a lot of of weddings. And one of the fun things is to to sit across from two people and say, there's going to be days where you can give 0%. There's going to be days where you fail and you're going to have to step up and be the 100%. You're going to step up and have to do everything. It's not 50-50, it's 100-100. Um, as we close, I just, I want to tell a story. Um, in the early church in Rome, who we talked about at the very beginning, there was this, this same attitude that we saw in Corinth. It was the same attitude that we see today of like, man, you just, you have sex, you do what, it, it can look however you want it to. Don't let anybody tell you any different. And that was true. They had that view culturally. But what happened was individually when that would happen and someone would have one of the consequences of sex that was negative and someone would have a child and someone would get a disease and someone something bad would happen, emotional damage, they would cast that person out. It was a good idea culturally, it was a good idea for everybody else, but as soon as it happened to you, you got cast out. You essentially had no home, you had no place to operate, you didn't have a place to go. And what happened in this Roman church that Paul was writing to is that they had such a a clear understanding of what God had to say about sex that their view of sex looked at the person who was so broken and they didn't go, okay, what did you do? Oh, you had sex outside of marriage? You had sex, okay, how many people? Okay, that qualifies you for level C. And you can operate, let me see, um, you can operate, you can get the third tier of heaven and we'll treat you this way. That's not how it worked. They understood that it was full redemption. It was full forgiveness. It was full being made new in Christ. Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone's found in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's gone away and the new has come. That God puts his spirit inside of you that changes who you are. You become part of his body, like what we read about tonight, and you become new. And it changes things. And that started to see the the Roman church, the early church start to have this revolution, not a sexual revolution, but a redemptive revolution of people that were cast out and had difficulty anywhere else that they said, hey, well, give us the poor and the needy. Give us the difficult, give us the cast out because we know what God says about them and we will love them. Can I just stop and tell you that if you have a history, you have a past, you have abuse, you have trauma, you have mistakes that you've made, God does not look at you as second tier. You can be fully forgiven in his sight, fully made new. And I think just the same way that the Romans looked at their culture and said that, it's like, hey, it's good for the culture, but when it's you, it's different. You might look at God's grace and go, hey, I get that for everybody else, but you don't know what I've done. So I know that I need to be cast out, but that is just not true. God came to seek and to save that which was lost. You might have a thing that you're like, man, this is something I carry and it makes me one of the lost, difficult to love. But you are, every person in this room is, broken because of the sin that we bring into the relationship with God, but also fully forgiven. And it sits like a gift, ready to be taken, free of charge. All you have to do is come to Christ and say, I want that gift. 
you have that gift. It's interesting to say that every, I get that for everybody else. For you, do you have that gift from God? Because the Bible says that you can have it. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he died on the cross for our sins, he'll forgive you. That's good news. Will you bow your head?